Thank you. Um, good morning, everyone, and thank you for the warm welcome, Ian. It gives um, me great pleasure to be opening the um, series of lectures today. And I've come across the IRC to um, present this paper, and it's all down to the, the, um, the funding we received from the Royal Irish Academy over the last few years for our work, which we're very grateful. And the paper that I'll be presenting today is on behalf of um, Colleen and myself as project directors for our project at Ballinamitra Cave. And also, it's on behalf of the um, quaternary scientists who have become involved in this project since it's begun. So you can see on the left-hand side there some of the organizations, including the National Museum here in Ireland and UCD. Um, we have experts who share our vision for this project and have um, really contributed significantly to it. So this is from all of um, our team. And what we'll be doing today is giving you an overview of our project and our current state of play. But just um, by way of introduction to say that when I first walked into this room, I got a bit of a chill coming in here. It's a beautiful room to speak in. And then it occurred to me that um, this cave was excavated, we're talking about now, in the 1870s. And it was published in the Royal Irish Academy journals in, in 1881. So I asked Gabriel, I said, look, would um, Leith Adams and um, Richard Usher have been presenting in this very room? And he said, almost certainly. So we have a direct sort of continuity from 140 years ago. So that just went, my spine tingled when he, when he said that. So I've got to make sure I do a good job. <laughs> so with any good project, and one that the Royal Irish Academy will, will, will look to fund, it has to have a really set of really gripping research questions um, for, that, for, that, for that money to be coming in um, directions of good projects. So for us, um, Colleen and myself have always had a fascination about the, the Paleolithic and um, why we have no Paleolithic in Ireland. So we began um, a long time ago in the, in the Dungarvan Valley exploring, looking at caves, and we saw a number of caves and we settled on one cave to do research in, and, and this is um, Ballinamantra Cave. When we started our work um, in talking with Peter Woodman, the late Peter Woodman, we um, realized that at that point in time, there was no substantive evidence for an Irish Paleolithic. Um, recently, a um, discovery was made of some engravings on a bear patella by um, Dr. Ruth Carden from a museum collection and this was dated to the late Ice Age. So this added even more weight to the idea that people were in Ireland, which is our, our belief, during the late Ice Age period. So we wanted to, um, as our project, is to try and essentially find evidence for that on the ground. And we settled on the Dungarvan Valley. And we went in with the idea that, obviously, we haven't found any evidence yet. But we need to look at it from a two-strand two point of view. One is to look, obviously, for nice evidence of fireplace and stone tools that you find in Britain at the same time. But also to be realistic and trying to understand what windows of opportunity were present for people to be in Ireland. So to understand when would people have been in Ireland, what was the environment like at those times, was it feasible for people to be living in Ireland in those times? So Ballinamintra Cave was a great place to, to um, become in-depth in this topic because it um, essentially has been excavated, as I said, in the past, and it's produced quaternary deposits that date to the late glacial period, which is around um, 
sort of 13,000 years ago. And it's also produced um, fauna from pre the last glacial maximum, pre the Ice Age peak 20,000 years ago. So it really um, has possible two periods of occupation, which in Britain, in neighboring Britain at the time, there were people living both times. Um, so we're wondering, okay, well, maybe we'll, we'll try and look and see what we can find in this cave. And of course, techniques have moved on in 140 years, so we could apply some more recent techniques um, to the excavation. But really the first thing we had to do when we went to the cave was to find out the extent of deposits that were surviving from the Pleistocene. Were they still surviving? Here you can see the Dungarvan Valley in County Waterford. And on a particular, on the um, first edition Ordnance Survey map, the cave is, we've plotted where the cave is located, but you can see it's not exactly marked 100%, but it looks like it could be, it could be like a slight quarry area as well. But there's a boreen, there's an old trackway running, running past it. So if you just remember about that trackway, keep that in your mind as the talk progresses. But the valley is a limestone valley, low-lying limestone valley, carboniferous limestone, and there's a little raised ridge in the middle of this valley, nestled in those trees there, and in those trees is a cave mouth, and secluded away, really, is, is Valley in the Mantra Cave. So we we're fortunate to have Peter Ryder's map from um, when he surveyed the cave in the late 1980s. So the main passageway is where we're kind of focusing our research the main front passageway area. There's lower, lower passageways as well, going to um, stalagmite-filled chambers, but we, um, for now we're focusing on the front area of the cave. So for its time, when you look at this stratigraphic drawing, it actually looks very, very good. Um, they've done a really good job, and I remember when we spent days looking at this in the field, trying to work out what was going on um, from their past excavations. So Richard Usher and Leith Adams dug for around three years in the cave and then wrote up their results in um, 1881. And this is a um, stratigraphic view of the cave going in. So the, the kind of grayish white is the limestone roof of the cave. So that's a profile drawing going in. And this is the cave mouth. And then you can see a series of deposits. So I know you won't be able to read the key, but I can just tell you where the colors the, the kind of tan brown color at the top is a Holocene deposit going in. The purple is the late glacial deposit. And he called this Unit 2, and the Holocene was Unit 1. And then Unit 3 is the pink below. And this pink um, contains some material which um, was um, cemented to stalagmite, which is the, the, the yellow, which is the unit four. So unit one was the, the brown, unit two was the purple, unit three was the pink, and interspersed in the pink and towards the back was a solid limestone, a uh, solid stalagmitic floor, yellow. And then beneath that was a um, that kind of orangey-brown sterile layer, and then the cave below that, and that was unit five. So this is what we had to go with. This is what he excavated away. So we went in to have a look and... and um, and have a closer look and see what was there. So we started in 2014. So that was the rationale we put to the Royal Irish Academy, and, and unfortunately they funded us. So we um, worked in two cutting areas inside the cave, you know, just a few meters, less than 10 meters inside the cave, where it widened out. And we found an old um, sondage, 
which was excavated possibly in the 1880s, or also the cave was visited again in the 1920s by Tratman from Bristol, possibly by him and his team. So we, we re-emptied out an old sondage, and then we literally cleaned the face of the section for cutting two, just, just to see. So it was only like three or four days, venture in there, empty out a hole, and clean back the stratigraphy, and let's see what we could um, see. What we could see. So this is the second of the cuttings, cutting two. This is the um, stratigraphic profile. This is kind of like a, um, we dubbed it like a veneer. It's just kind of a, a, a kind of a sediment still cemented partially at the, um, at the bottom, but certainly solidly at the top of what, when we look at the descriptions of, of atoms, atoms called unit two is a kind of tufa deposit, which makes it quite cementy. So the kind of top, um, sort of 40 centimetres, you can see is quite rocky looking. That's actually kind of part of the cemented deposits. And then it becomes a bit more gravelly and loose um, beneath that. So it was basically um, a question of recording the stratigraphy. But on the top right, we noticed the shaft of bone was um, cemented in, in the um, unit two deposit. So we prized that off when we were there. So it was definitely cemented in place. It wasn't something that had moved around all that much. We took it back with us, and um, Ruth looked at it and said that it was a mid-shaft of a, of a large animal, but there was no other diagnostic features on it. So we took it to have its protein analyzed in Manchester, called this technique called Zooms. And he narrowed it down, Mike Buckley narrowed it down to red deer, giant deer, or elk. And it turned out that it was giant deer. So this fits in with the, with the kind of late glacial match between the unit two and um, the giant deer. That lower sondage, essentially we identified that stalagmatic floor layer, unit four, if you remember that big stalagmatic floor layer. And there were some deposits beneath that, which were um, some um, possibly in-wash deposits from unit three, quite sterile looking. And then on the very base was a water lane deposit, which um, Simon Colcart, our cave person thought that it was, sediment person thought that it had been brought in by a glacier. We took a bit of sample of the, of the unit four. You can actually date um, stalagmitic formations. They're essentially like tree rings. They have growth lines on them. So um, we managed to get a date of 115,000, which is a long time ago, which is the last warm period in Ireland. And this makes sense because stalagmites essentially form during wet phases because it's officially water percolating through. So we basically know that you need at least 300 millimeters of rainfall, annual rainfall, for such things to form globally. So we know that there's rainfall forming during the during the um, Holocene, during the last interglacial. And we found a chunk in the unit of in the unit three, a loose chunk, and we looked at that. And incredibly, we got a date which books back to the penultimate interglacial, almost 200,000 years ago. So we know this, there was a water environment, there was humidity, there was rainfall on Ireland 200,000 years ago. We have no other evidence in the, I don't think in anywhere in Ireland we have a possible climate um, record for this time period that we can potentially um, generate. And by that, I mean that you can actually look closely at these growth lines. And um, one of my master's students was doing this where they essentially um, took samples and tried to measure the growth lines or assess the potential for this to be a climate record. Essentially, 
if water each annually forms has a particular oxygen isotope signature, and that signature varies according to the climate. So if you have a continuous record that isn't recrystallized, then you can perhaps generate a climate record from it. So we're hopeful that this has the potential to do that, but this is a substantial funding um, is involved in that you need multiple dates and multiple samples of OSL. But we can certainly say that the potential is there for this to be used in a climate reconstruction. So our first year then, essentially, we were looking inside the cave. And I remember the day, like Colleen said to me, he'd been reading the, um, reading the, the 1881 paper and was measuring out like that, you know, when you go to get pirate's treasure, you follow the treasure map and how many paces do you go? He was out there pacing down like, hold on, he says, we get to this far, but there's still more sediment going that way. Like, so we did the measurements and thought, well, maybe back in the 1881s, they didn't know how to measure very well, but then maybe actually, he thought, well, they thought that they had reached the end of the cave deposits, and maybe they hadn't. Or maybe it was just spoil. So we put this to the Royal Irish Academy, and then we're back there the following year with the rationale to clean the front of the cave. And, you know, outside, I've mentioned about the borine before. The yellow buck up there is on this borine. So, again, our work involved no actual excavations. The first year was no excavation. It was just cleaning. This year was the same thing. We cleaned the front, the vegetation off. We cleared the track, cleaned the vegetation off. Did no, well, did a tiny bit of digging out the front there, but like essentially, we exposed a pile of cave earth deposits outside of the cave, not inside of the cave, but outside of the cave, including a brown bear tooth, uh, or teeth, in fact, which are found right down deep there. And underneath the yellow bucket, you still see the cave deposits going. They were going out into the into the um, hedgerow. On the, on the left, you can see some nice tip lines, which probably relate to, bolder tip lines, relate to the excavation's um, spoil. But that bulk of sediment where um, the excavator was standing behind that, that is all um, potentially, some of it anyway, we thought, well, this was actually in situ cave deposits. And there were some big boulders there falling down as well. So we, we were thinking maybe there was a cave out here once and it collapsed. The cave mouth actually extended further and everything had collapsed in. Because it wasn't like a debris flow which had like been washed all the deposits out of the cave. This looked like in situ deposits in the cave. So we drew the section and we went with the hypothesis that perhaps what we saw out the front was equivalent to that um, pink layer with the yellow blots in it because we found this similar described sediment with also class um, from stalagmitic pieces bits and pieces. And we were hypothesizing that maybe it was unit two above that. So we said this to the Royal Irish Academy, and back we were again to find out the following year. We did an excavation from the cave mouth to the track, trench six there, and that was probably the wettest excavation I've ever been on. It just rained the whole time. But all credit to our team of excavators. Um, we realized that what, what we thought might have been the unit two wasn't. It was just modern overburden. Once you see it in sections, sometimes when you dig something down, you look at a section, it's like, oh yeah, that's definitely like modern overburden. That brown color is, is um, recent. But however, it came down to this pile of cemented rubble, this kind of unit three question mark deposit. And it extended right out the cave and was dipping down out the cave. And you can see like a big chunk of flowstone out the front there. And we even dug a hole in the, in, the, in the trackway, which you can just see to the right of the word cemented rubble. And we dug down there. And we went down like, I don't know how the guys did it. We went down about a meter and a half. And it's still going down. Whatever was there, it's still going down. 
But there you can see it better in this picture. So this cutting five, we dug a sondage a meter and a half. There's all this cemented rubble. And we think these big blocks here, which, which we think um, is what persuaded um, Adams and Usher to think that's the cave floor, that's the end of the cave. These are roof collapse. We know they're roof collapse, or at least our cave sedimentologist stroke geomorphologist said these are roof collapse. And big massive blocks there, the blocks out the front. And when you look at all that kind of rubble, it's all tipping in and going down like this. It's all kind of going down where, that, where the ranging pole is into the ground. So um, that was where we left it in 2017. We came back to Royal Irish Academy. <laughs> Keep thinking, right, we've solved this one now. And it just got bigger. Each year it got bigger and bigger and bigger. So luckily they took pity on us. And um, oh yeah, just to show you, this is this is this deposit. This, these, these are silt deposits. The yellow here are like silt deposits underneath this rubble. And so up the top, the fauna, the first was where that bear tooth was found. We found a few more pieces of that interface between the fauna and the teeth. And we're thinking maybe that's just part of the rubble that's come down. But then the guys found like um, bear bones and things like way down there, at least a meter deep into these horizontally layered silts. This is not something which is kind of collapsed and skittled down. There's something else going on. So it feels old, and the bones look old. So there's the blocks. You can see the roof collapse there on both sides in the cave mouth. So big, massive blocks. So um, essentially, if we were in the 1880s, this is when in Shandon Cave they went out to the local dynamite store and, um, and removed that. So um, we didn't have those liberties today, and nor did we obviously want to take those liberties. So we, we had a plan which involved a bit of hard graft. So that's Colleen there operating the Kango. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to see him this morning. I thought maybe he, he's, he's still with us. So, um, and Philly, uh, Philip Kenny down there, he's sitting on the spoil heap, which basically was a lot of hard work to remove. And he was the leading kind of spoil heap remover. He, he's used to working on medieval churches in Kilkenny and stuff, with nice block work and things. So he keeps looking and thinking, this is like a castle. It has coherency. It's like, but it doesn't. It's like it's just a random blocks being dumped. And um, he removed some of those and then found underneath um, so a little bit of sediment. We thought, oh, maybe we're onto, onto some sediment. Maybe it's going underneath the cave. And then we took that off. And it's like, if you ever found that feeling of finding a souterrane, it's the same thing as that. Suddenly, like, there's a just a big hole going down. And what we thought was just the top of sediment, we've actually exposed a, um, a new cave underneath our cave. And you can see all the rubble has gone through. It's fallen right into that from when that roof collapse happened. It's actually broken a hole in, that, in the roof of that cave beneath and gone down. So we had a look and saw that this bit here I'm highlighting was actually a bit of in situ stalagmite formation. Remember I said that these things can be dated. So um, we chipped off a bit of that, and Frank McDermott came down, and I actually handed him that in the field outside and said, can you go and date this, please? He said, sure, and he, he cut up a sample of it, and he came back with the date. And at this point, we're thinking, what age could this possibly be? So the roof collapse has come through. And one of the big things is that was, it, um, was Ireland covered during ice during the last ice age? And that was a big question we had in our minds. Because we were increasingly thinking, how could Ireland be completely covered in ice, and ice in the ice age, which is what the current climate models, the glacial models say, when 
we always have so much sediment just sitting outside the cave. We thought it would have been scoured away. And so this roof collapse, maybe this happened during the last glacial maximum, and this is what the, the, the consequence of it was. But when the date came back, it came back as pre-LGM. So it came back as 46,000. A bit of a big error range at the moment, which we need to work on a bit. So we know that the cave between 30 and 50,000, 35 and 55,000 years ago, it um, broke through the, the cave below, because that speed of them stopped growing at that point, because it's exposed to air. So we did some 3D mapping, which is we still haven't quite got on top of all these results yet. So we took away all the, the shoring and things and did a 3D scan of the area. And then we peered down with a, with a camera. It was obviously too dangerous to go down there. So we peered down with a camera, and you can see sediment in there. And you can see the lip of the roof is of, that's clearly a roof, you know, water um, effect and water rolling on the sides of the, of the roof of the cave going down. It's hard to get the angle, but that's kind of, it's dipping down like that, the sediments. So uh, now it's at the point where it's just it's getting too um, it's just too extensive in a way. So we're thinking maybe these sediments match that you know the big hole we dug out the front. Maybe they are going under and they join that. So that was our next thinking. So we opened up a hole out the front in the same season, and thinking well we're bound to strike bedrock at some point, but no. More of these the silt deposits are horizontally bedded. Are just going this way. So we don't know where the bedrock is out the front of the cave. So we don't know whether these are sediments that are banked up against the, the um, banked up against the bedrock, and then the cave is behind that, or whether these are actually sediments that were once inside a cave, which is now the roof is long gone, that have formed inside a cave. So we've taken some um, samples of that. We're going to do some pollen work on that, see what environmental signatures we can find. Because that lower, the lowest of those blocks was where the um, was where the um, tooth had come from, that kind of area. So this is our latest kind of thinking. We have the green representing these horizontal bands, and just last week we got a date. We remarkably managed to get a date on that lower piece of bare, which is at the end of the radiocarbon range. That's so a minimum age, so it's at least 47,000 years old, and that kind of fits nicely with that 46,000 date meaning that those deposits are forming, you know, forming um, around 47,000 years ago or older, and then they were covered by this roof collapse and sealed. So we've got two different events kind of loosely tying in this roof collapse anyway to between to pre-LGM. So the deposits are still going that way, they're still going that way, they're still going this way and that way. So the cave has just got very enormous in its potential, um, and it's conveniently like it's digging a cave outside. So just to go, to go inside again, we thought, well, we haven't quite finished what we wanted to do inside, so we went back inside the cave. You can see us working out the front up there. We went back to that cutting too again. We thought, we'll have one more look at that. So we went in and then saw that um, actually um, we're going to do dig into the side of this veneer. And of course, it wasn't a veneer. I don't know why we thought that, but it looked like it was, but it wasn't. So um, we recovered a number of um, bones in the cement deposit, and um, Ruth Carden identified a number of them. And then uh, we took those that we weren't able to identify to, um, to be zooms. So we have, a, we have dog, dog, fox, wolf, dog, hare, giant deer, other servines. We have a range of animals just from a small sample that we've taken there. And you see, we, we decided to try and break down this unit too into different contexts. So that's 24, 25, 26, 20, 29 down the bottom. So 24, 25, and 29 were faunal bearing. And this one's from 29, the, the, the deepest. 
So we took this bone uh, with us as a fox mandible. Uh, Ruth was able to say it was fox on visual um, interpretation. And then um, we had um, we decided with 3D scan before sampling any of our any of our any of our bones. So we had a visiting PhD student who was um, specialises in this, and so she took a 3D scan of it and just um, she had an existing data set and it shows you that it's probably going to be almost certainly a red fox, the first dated red fox in Ireland, so the late glacial. So we plotted all our dates we have so, we have so far. So I'm going to show you these on three different slides. This is the pre-LGM dates that we have. The green triangle represents dates that we have dated ourselves. So this is that brown bear deep down. And um, Peter Woodman and Nigel Monahan and so forth from the 1997 produced those other dates, which we know techniques have moved on in 20 years' time. So we don't know how those dates fit with the other one, with our one at the moment. But it's probable that there are different time periods um, because those are found inside the cave, those lower ones. So in the late glacial um, selection, the red fox at the top there is the deepest one down, and it happens to be the oldest. Um, it has the oldest range. I know they overlap slightly, but just do, it's nice to see that it's the oldest one. And then context 25, the next deepest, had the next oldest date, and that was the um, giant deer. So it's a green, the green triangle represents bones that have come out of the ground that we, we dug and we dated. We also dated ones in the museum collection a couple of years earlier, and you'll see that they all quite align, a lot of giant deer quite align with that date. So I think we found context 25, we can differentiate in the museum collection context 25. And then the lower green giant deer, that was the one I showed you at the very start, that came out, that was from context 24 at the very top of that, so that was a good stratigraphy as well. And that's the younger date you see, um, 13, 100. And that matches also with another one in the museum. So I think we have two, my hypothesis, we have, our hypothesis, we have two giant deer in the cave from different time periods separated by a couple of hundred years in there. And that, un, that date without the triangle is from the Cotone Research Project. And you can see the differences in um, 1997, the era brackets, versus today. They're much narrower today. And I suspect if we redated that one, it would align with the, those two above. There's also two reindeer that we dated for the museum collections, but we didn't see any sign of them um, in the cave or any sign of those deposits. So we're quite happy with the, the stratigraphy and we were able to differentiate Adams's stratigraphy. We went to date, however, some of Adams's deposits, some, some of his bones, and thinking they're layer three or layer four, or layer unit three or unit four, it turns out they're the Holocene. So we've inadvertently improved the Holocene record of, of Ireland. So um, you can see we have a, a clear effort of um, of Holocene just after 3000 BC, um, the end of, towards the end of the Neolithic. We have two, one from an old excavation and one from ourselves. And then we have, again, another couple of episodes where there's often evidence in the Holocene, which I haven't got time to go into. We can also get the isotopic signatures from the bones. Um, these are kind of indications of diet. So this is that we sampled a number from the museum collections, about 40, and then we sampled the ones. Every time we do a radiocarbon date, we get a, um, these isotope scores, and you see they cluster quite nicely. So the grey triangles represent Megaloceros or giant deer; they cluster quite well, and then the um, the lepus cluster quite well, the hare. But interestingly, the bear Ursus there, the one that we found at the bottom, deep down, has a very low nitrogen score, which means it was probably kind of eating a lot of vegetarian stuff. Um, of like two, and that's quite a difference 
than the bears inside the cave. So I think they are different. It's not the same animal that's spread out. There's definitely two different bear populations going on in the in that time period. I'm pretty certain of that. Um, and also, you can see the reindeer clustering there. And also, at the very right, we found a bovine. So this is unusual. Like if it's a, if it's a wild, it'll be like an oryx, which which will be very exciting. But it could be an intrusive Holocene domestic animal. And its signature is very near a, a red deer, which is definitely Holocene as well. So it's probably a Holocene um, intrusive one. But we'll date that to find out to be sure. So we've taken DNA samples of a suite of the bones, including the canids, which is, if you look up here at the blue, the blue diamonds, you see six blue diamonds at the top between eight and 10. Four of them are kind of over that side, and there's two over this side. Those four that side are Holocene, and then the two this side are glacial. So they're possibly wolves, those two that are slightly separate. So we need to work out, but they could be on the path of dogs too. So it's really exciting in terms of possible possible um, people in the cave. And then we found a human tooth from the section cleaning, which we are in the process of dating, and it's likely to be Neolithic based on the fact that there's a Neolithic burial in the cave from the old times, but who knows. So in summary then, our project has started off. We've only been working there probably five weeks in total, but we found like an enormous amount of deposits outside of the cave, more deposits inside of the cave, pre-LGM and post-LGM, still great potential in the cave for future work. It raises questions about whether Ireland was actually ever fully covered in ice, given all these sediments survive out the front. And we have evidence of possible earlier MIS-7 occupation in the cave. So um, our small little project has is, is really grown enormously and is, has exciting potential, which we're on the verge of publishing more. So I'd like to give thanks to um, the team who've helped us, but particularly, especially the Dungarvan Community Archaeology Group, who we wouldn't be here today without them, and to our excavators, and also to the late Professor Woodman, who visited us fortunately during the time. Thank you very much.